Art Yourself Alive podcast with your host Vicky Parker, sharing lived experience stories of the power of creativity to support your mental health and well-being. So welcome to today's Art Yourself Alive podcast with my very, very special guest and very good friend, Sarah Chaplin. Hello, Sarah. How are you? Hi, Vicky. I'm very well. Thank you very much for having me on. It's a really pleasure to be with you today. Oh, you're very welcome. And just so for the listeners, let's just outline exactly who this amazing being is who we're going to be talking to today. Um, So Sarah Chaplin is a jazz musician, a composer and uh, a radio presenter for Jazz London Live. She is also a children's author for climate fiction or the genre of cli-fi with amazing books called Sea Bean Trilogy, Chameleon and a new book on the way, which she's just been telling me about. And she's also got a book about how to write a poem and been doing some amazing work with kids, enabling them to write poetry about environmental issues, which is just heartbreakingly sad when you listen to some of them read some of them so we've had a lovely conversation about that but I've brought Sarah here today because she like me has um, a real interest in obviously creative process and well-being and quantum healing and spiritual aspects to healing and she has such an amazing wealth of knowledge as well about all of those areas and we've had many many conversations in the past years um, around all of that kind of like self-empowerment journey and how all of those processes can really really be fundamental to your understanding your own personal growth and to feeling amazing and feeling autonomous and feeling like a sovereign being. And um, so today we're going to talk to Sarah about all of that amazing creative stuff that she does and dip into a few personal stories for herself about how she's used her own creative process to navigate some challenges in her own life, challenges that are really, really um, accessible to everybody we all go through these things and you'll find that today's story is, is something that I hopefully you'll be able to relate to. So, Sarah. Yes, yes. So <laughs> Let's exciting. get into that. It's yeah. so exciting. Um, so, as we always do on this podcast, let's dip in from the very beginning to the spark, that spark of light that happens for everybody right at the very beginning of their lives in terms of their childhood experiences of play, curiosity and whatever creative stuff they were you know getting involved in when they were little so can we begin by you offering us and sharing some of your memories of what it was like for you to be a creative kid Mm. well Mm. it was it was collaborative and um, mostly outdoors Um, I think I grew up in the 70s so we we were a bit more free range than my own children's childhood has been and even though I I lived in a in a small village you know there were fields still you could kind of go to and I think most of my memories when I look back about when I was truly in flow and truly creative not just for a short burst of time you know um, because obviously I was somebody that did a lot of drawing and a lot of you know a lot of kind of arty things but that's maybe quite short-lived but this thing that kind of would sustain me for the whole day would be making dens 
and whether they were making dens in a hedgerow, in a corner of a field, in a wood, and dragging bits of you know things you found around the place and a blanket or two and some pegs and and then taking some of your dollies and toys and things and inhabiting the den or whether it was in the back garden and I often used to really irritate my parents or grandparents because I'd turn the sun lounges on the side and you know kind of drag furniture out of the house and borrow blankets and sheets and more pegs and um, quite often these dens would get more and more elaborate as the day went on and then it was always a very um, sad moment when you had to dismantle it at bedtime you know but that, that, that was when I really lost myself in play and it nearly always involved a cousin or my sister or a friend who'd come around for the for the day um, so it was also about a social process of negotiating well what if we did this and what if it had one of these and let's use the blue blanket here and the orange blanket there you know I can remember lots of discussions along the way it wasn't just me having an idea and then executing it it was much more about the fun of involving other people and seeing what they thought and what their imagination took them to Mm. Oh, do you know, I've got such images in my head. So please put some words to the images that might be there for other people. What were these dens like? What did you make them out of? Um, well, I can remember that. I don't know if you remember in the in the 70s, we had these sun lounges that kind of were aluminium frames with a sort of stretched flowery cover over them. And we had about three of those um, at my Nana's house. And um, you, when you turn them on their sides and put the legs out, they, the legs made it made really good structures so I, I remember thinking they were quite sturdy these dens and then because one part of it would bend a bit you could make it into the door and then you could open and shut the door um, and make it quite private and I think we used to sometimes take in a sponge mattress to be the floor of the den so it, it got really involved um, and each time you made it you'd never recreate the same den it would always be a different one. And how's that translated into the way that you live in an environment now actually that's a uh... Just an intuitive question that's yeah. Popped. Well, I think I, I like to improvise, and um, uh, you know, yes, you know, I kind of like to live in a stylish interior. You know, I trained as an architect, so a lot of my formal professional training um, and my kind of taste cartography, I like to call it, came through my professional seven years in architecture school. But there's a part of me that absolutely rebels against all of that. So I've often found that creatively. What I like is something much more rustic and rough around the edges and um, immediate. And what I'm trained to like or what I'm trained to design is the opposite of that. It's something sleek and um, chic and, you know, kind of uh, designer or something. I, I'm not even sure what vocabulary I'd use around that. But in my own home, sometimes it's it's like the, the meeting point between those two mindsets I've found is informing a decision, you know, to buy a sofa or to kind of choose a new cushion or something. <laughs> it's quite interesting. I've watched that in myself. And as I've pulled away from my architectural career and become a children's author and started to do other things more creative things actually I I've, I'm less invested in that professional design mindset and I'm more accepting of my choices around things that my architectural peers would disapprove of actually interesting interesting sounds like it sounds very much like my childhood actually building dens I used to live near a forest in in Yorkshire and we would be building dens all day. In yeah. that time when we were allowed to just go out at breakfast time 
be away all day and mum would say be home five o'clock for your tea and never know where you were for the rest of the time real sense of climbing trees or you know doing dangerous things with farm machinery or something absolutely and Mm. I think that's really interesting about our peer group for people um you know from growing up in the 60s and 70s or before that that freedom to be in complete flow and Mm. curiosity Mm. uh, and, and wild abandon when we were kids, I think is really, you know, that's been fundamental to the foundations of who I am as a creative person, mm. because I've not, I've, because I've experienced that sense of wild freedom. Yeah. I can never let go of that. No, exactly. And what was really interesting, Vicky, to me was that, um, you know, my husband has sort of shared similar things as well, especially the playing out. His was more about playing football until you couldn't see the ball anymore, you know. Um, <laughs> but we, we bought our kids some stuff. We went to this shop um, and they were selling kind of like ex-military stuff, I suppose. It was like a big camo, you know, blanket thing, you know, one of those ones that's um, like a camo net with holes in it, you know, and it was really cheap. And I said, oh, let's buy this for the kids because they could make a den up at the back of our garden. And at the to- at that time, the back of the garden was a very wild place. We hadn't even cut down some of the undergrowth at the back there. And it, and I knew that if that was me at their age, I'd be out there every day, you know, building something at the back. And um, we gave them these bits and pieces and dragged out some other things from the house and sort of set, like a kind of starter kit <laughs> to make a den and said, and they looked at us, you know, nonplussed and said, what, what do we do with that? And we said, well, you make a den you know and they didn't really know what to do and I I I experienced a sort of a sadness actually um and it wasn't that I thought suddenly oh my children aren't creative or my children lack the curiosity that I had or something it just was that I realized they were growing up in a different time and they had different things that were informing their curiosity and their adventurous spirit was coming out in other ways and I just naturally assumed they'd want to channel it into this den building and and it wasn't the case So then tell us, what are the roots of your musician self and your writing self from back then? Mm. Well, interesting. So the threads do connect. So my my writing self came alive um, when I was about eight years old. And um, I must have been doing some bits of writing and showing my mum because she found um, there was a competition in my local library when we were living in Bedfordshire um, to, to send in a story. And she said, oh, you know, you've been writing some stories. Why don't you you know, send one of your stories in? So I wrote this story called The Silver Peacock. And, um, and I've still got it all written out in you know, my kind of funny handwriting at the time. Um, and it won the competition. And uh, I won a set of uh, a rainbow set of 48 felt tip pens. I was so proud of it. And I just couldn't believe that this was the prize, you know, and and it did sort of sow the seed of, you know, enjoying writing and thinking that other people that I could get validation for my writing. Um, But I think I was more interested in the felt tip pens, actually, because then that was an (laughs) invitation to draw (laughs) and um, and do something very ambitious because I had so many colours. So it didn't really the thought process didn't complete itself, if you know what I mean. And then during my teens, I wrote poems to kind of work through my emotions, you know, poems that you didn't show anybody, poems that were very private and um, very painful to write sometimes. Uh, So that was just, I think when I, if I knew the vocabulary then, I realised that they were just a process. I, you know, I used them as a process my emotions. Um, and it was only later when I when I met Eric, who then became my husband, that he found out that I liked to write, and he wanted to encourage me. That um, I started to write a short a short story, like a flash or sudden fiction piece every day. You know, like instead of writing a diary, instead of journaling, 
I was drawn to fictionalise from my own life experience. So they they would often emerge out of something that had happened to me, a, a conversation I'd heard on the bus on, on the way to wherever that day or something like that. And then I'd turn it into a story. So my innate knack was to take something that just became the raw material to then manipulate it and not write it up as I experienced it, but to turn it into a story. And I became really good at writing these extremely short stories, um, so much so that I thought I couldn't really write anything any in a longer form. Um, so it took a long time until my mid-40s before I came to the realisation that I wanted to write. I felt motivated uh, to write um, a, a novel for children, and mainly because my children were starting to read books I'd read growing up and they weren't as excited by them as I thought they would be you know um so I I kind of had to think about what it was that they were it's about again about my children's expectations and experiences and growing up at another time and and um they needed something with much more suspense and cliffhangers and stuff like that so I had to challenge myself to write a story that I would have enjoyed reading but they would also enjoy and that's what propelled me into into making writing my my new sort of career change if you like yeah yeah and your musician self? And my musician self. So, yeah, that was kind of more um, constrained as a child. You know, it was kind of like about music lessons and having to, you know, practice the pieces. And, and, and it was a lot about, I was a very undisciplined child. I was very unruly. My parents kind of didn't know what to do with me in a way. Um, they... I was a little bit, um, a little bit violent, you know. I banged somebody over the head with a hammer, and I think at that point they thought maybe this isn't the right school for her. And um, uh, so a lot of it was about managing some of my excess energy, I think, um, probably my excess creative energy that wasn't being channeled, and I wasn't being challenged enough, and I wasn't, and I was often told off for things in a way I didn't understand. You know, I I, I taught a boy to read because he sat next to me and he came to school with no socks on because he was from a very poor family and he couldn't read and we were in year two by then and uh, I remember thinking oh I'll take this on as a project I'm going to teach Duncan how to read and um, and I got told off for it and moved to another table and and so that sometimes I didn't understand the system if you know what I mean and yeah I do <laughs> so so I had violin lessons and I probably hated it and I quite often kept leaving my violin in the garden probably in a den that I'd made and left out um and then I had piano lessons when I changed schools um but none of it really was the way I wanted to play I, it wasn't playful enough it wasn't improvisatory at all it was very much about learning it and practicing it till you got it right um, which none of that came naturally to me so um, musicianship I kind of knew that I was I had some kind of musicianship in me but it didn't flourish in the way that it could have done maybe so I then got to secondary school started playing various brass instruments um, and had my eye on the school saxophone they had one saxophone at my school and I thought that's what I want I want to play that with all those buttons and that lovely shiny horn and mm. and I never got the school saxophone because I left to do sixth form somewhere else so I ended up only playing trombone at school and then when I had my 21st birthday my parents said what would you like for your birthday and I said I'd like a saxophone please <laughs> out of nowhere you know it came out of nowhere to them but for me it was like a project that had been fermenting for many years yeah. and um, they said oh okay that's strange you know what are you going to do with that I said oh, I'm going to play it and um, so yeah while I was a student in Nottingham I, I had some saxophone lessons and um, 
uh, yeah, and then it was still all a big mystery to me, really. How do you improvise? What are these funny chord symbols? I'd, I had no idea what was going on. In so someone could look at a set of chord symbols and then play in the most amazing made-up tune. I just didn't know what was going on. So that took another 20-odd years, really, because there was a big gap. When my kids were little, I didn't play at all. And then I picked it up again when my, my third child was a toddler. And um, haven't looked back really. I just sort of said, right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go for it now. I'm really gonna understand how do you do this improvisation thing and get, get into jazz properly. Yeah, I mean that that really is the path of jazz musician. As it's, you know, that's part of my path as well. And that freedom, that freedom to understand that there's a structure that you can know and yes. integrate into your bones but then you can fly with it yes oh, on that's top beautiful. of that it's just yeah. so beautiful isn't it and I can mm -hmm. really now see listening to where you your starting points were why jazz improvisation is absolutely something why you're so good at it yeah do you know what I mean because it's like yes this is what we've been looking for mm -hmm. this is yeah, that space <laughs> that we want to operate in yes. where there are there are some kind of rules, but there's almost like an agreement that the rules can shift and change. Mm. And, and just knowing that you have that freedom within it mm. allows you to open a portal within it because I can resonate with that. Yeah. You know, it needs to be played like this kind yes. of lesson and yeah, me yeah. totally rebelling around yeah. that for myself yeah. as well. I was like, no. <laughs> yeah, no, that's <laughs> exactly the kind of ingredients that I need. It's how I cook. You know, I never get a recipe book off the shelf and follow it slavishly. I always go, I look in the fridge, I look what's going off in the fridge and I go, oh, I could build this great meal around those three things that are going off in the fridge. <laughs> I love uh, that we're describing this creative mind, this creative flow, this way of being where mm -hmm. you just look at what's in front of you and you go, okay, let me just play around with how I can put that together. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That's a That's lovely way of fun. being. Yeah, it fun. is. Yeah. 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 Gosh, what a rich history of creative process up until yes. now. Yeah. I think it was it was kind of encouraged and discouraged simultaneously. Um, my parents were neither, weren't creative in their jobs. You know, my, my dad, uh, well, I say they were not overtly creative. My dad was an engineer and my mum was a linguist, um, but they both did things outside of their work that they, they were both involved in the theatre in set design in acting and and um, uh, and directing and things like that so they there was a lot of evidence in my immediate family that you could go out and do things like that and have hobbies like that and then in my wider family there are artists and musicians and, and potters and and people who I think my my ancestral line is quite artisanal you know we, we're kind of we like working with our hands we've um we trust our judgment around making things, if you know what I mean. We feel comfortable when we're making things. Yeah. Um, so that's that's kind of who I realise that I am and where I've kind of come from. So with that all being said, then on the backdrop of that wonderful mm. creative richness, would you like to share now something about a challenge that you've had for yourself where you've really consciously used your creative process and your tools to help support yourself through that? Well, very sadly, um, five months after my first child was born, my mum suddenly died. Um, uh, that was back in 2000. And um, it's funny when I look back, really, because her mother, my nana, um, she always used to say she was born in in 1910 and she was saying oh you know when she was a little girl she always imagined and daydreamed about perhaps I'll see the next century because I'll be 90 then 
and you know my nana made it and my mum barely did and who would have who would have thought that but um yeah so because it came out of the blue she hadn't been ill at all it was actually some sort of anaphylactic um shock that she died of through we don't know you know whether it was provoked by some combination of meds she took or something I don't know it could have been anything so she she um she died very suddenly and I was still breastfeeding this baby and um, my world just fell apart. You know, I was in my early 30s and um, that process of being plunged into the deepest grief imaginable um, when you don't even know what grief is, you had no preparation for it at all and you had this baby that was utterly dependent on you and all the hormones that, you know, new motherhood brings as well. It was quite a cocktail and you didn't want your child to see your unhappy face. You didn't want to kind of see your tears, you know, literally dripping onto your baby as they as they fed or something. You know, and I was very conscious of needing to kind of express it and curb it at the same time, just for the sake of this this infant, because I thought this is so bonding. This is so much about him gazing up at you while he's feeding. And then if all he sees is this distant look on your face and these sad eyes, you know, that's not really a start in the world. So... I think in the end, I realised that that the breastfeeding was the most creative and and nurturing thing I was doing for myself to get out of it because you know you release what is it oxytocin or something mm. anyway when you're breastfeeding anyway that is sort of helpful to the mother it makes the mother relax and sit still in, long enough for the baby to feed but I realised that that became a place that I could go to that was um, away from the the grief funnily enough. And so the first thing I realised about the whole grief process was the importance of self-care and that um, having a high level of, of awareness around that and needing to make that the creative focus almost, you know, that I wasn't just caring for this baby, but I realised that first and foremost, I had to care for myself, not just because I was the milk making machine, but because otherwise nothing functioned. So... I think it sort of was a feeling of starting to build up from ground zero, almost like kind of starting from a kind of the, the barest place again. And I realised that there's a lot of judgment around grief and a lot of people putting timescales around your grief and when it should begin and end and how it should be expressed and when it should be expressed and what's socially acceptable and what's not. So there was a lot of um, realising that grief has all these social contracts and, you know, it's very messed up really that made me feel quite certain that in the end, in future, I was going to be able to help other people through their grief. You know, the teacher in me thought, you know, I, I'm going through this hellish time, but in the end, maybe my um, my experience is going to be helpful for others because I won't put these same parameters around other people when I witness them going through their grief because I'll know how, I'll know, I'll know how hard it is, you know. And it, it was kind of annoying when people said, oh, time's a great healer, you know, they'd say these reassuring sentiments, you know, they would trot out these kind of phrases and I'd, I'd just be lost, really. So, yeah, gradually, I think what, what happened was I felt that losing my mother was a key part of my identity was removed, like my soul had gone, you know, a key part of my soul had gone. And, and so I had to love myself as myself for myself, if you like. So I had to become my own mother. I had to intel and, and it was very easy because I was learning to be a mother at the same time. So that made it easier. And I thought, OK, the universe did have a plan here was that my mum was going to go at a time when I was not not the worst time, but actually possibly the best time in terms of me being at the moment where I was learning what motherhood is what you know, and actually redefining it on my own terms experientially. So the creative part of me then realized that 
mothering was was this creative nurturing thing that I was doing but it wasn't just about my baby it was about me I was mothering me I was nurturing me and that I think gradually kick-started some very natural process of, of healing and learning to like myself again and what I also came to realize was that um, when I'd done creative things in the past I'd done them to seek approval and to seek um, a demonstration of love from the person who I showed it to or gave it to, mostly in, in my case, my parents, you know. So I think I didn't ever hear them say that they loved me or hear them express their love in words. And so I knew that if I did a great little drawing or something that they would, you know, be um, impressed by, I would show them the drawing and then I would get approval and admiration and praise and that would stand in for an expression of love and I realized that I needed to stop doing that you know because I was still doing it with my husband doing things to get his approval and, his, and a pat on the back you know and generally in life I was doing most things in my life externally to get pats on the back and and I realized I'd aligned creative outputs creative productivity with the need to have validation externally always um, and even writing books and even playing, writing tunes, playing my instrument, doing gigs, everything was about me seeking approval from some external source. And I had to stop doing that. I had to really come to that realisation that I, if I was doing it at all, it was for me. It was for my own growth and for my own pleasure and for my own amusement. <laughs> um, so, because then that took me back to that place when I was a child. And if there was a social context to it as well, like being in a band together and negotiating how you're going to play a tune, then all the better. Um, because then that brought in the other element, the other ingredient of what I'd enjoyed as a, as a child. Mm. So that, that was probably my journey out of it, for sure. Which I love the picture that you've just painted. It's so circular around from that, uh, you know, from that essence of childhood, just being totally in the zone of the self and then bringing back to, you know, a point of pure creation of motherhood and baby is pure creation. I love mm. how you described breastfeeding as a creative process. But what you also outlined there was this broader understanding of um, an intellectual sense of what those social constructs around grief were, but you transcending what mm. those social constructs were about, you know, and how they applied to you and how that in itself is a creative process, because creativity gives you that permission to expand way beyond anybody mm. else's frameworks or labels and oh, yeah. more importantly, your own, your yes. own inner frameworks and mindsets. Because yes. that's what we're really working with, creativity. It's an antidote to any kind of burdening, structured frameworking that keeps you tight or keeps you in line or keeps you in some kind of rule following. I mean, artists are rebels. Yeah. <laughs> Jazz I, I, musicians I, in you. particular are rebels. I, I, I love how you put that. That's so amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I hadn't yeah. thought of it in quite that way, but that is the freeing part of it for sure. Yeah, to come back to that self and to have that insight and awareness that, yes, I mean, that's also been my journey to have a creative talent from being young um, and to get that external validation and love from, you know, the audience outside and the parents outside for that talent that you have. Because for me, it was dance and singing and, you know, all of those kind of things. And I'm like, yeah there comes a point where it has to be for you and that's when it means something and that's why I'm a real advocate for doing your own creative process 
just in the privacy of your own home for your own meaning, for your own presence, for your own integration. And if that artwork or that music or that dance or whatever is witnessed by someone else, that witnessing process becomes a very different animal. Yeah. Because there's no seeking of validation anymore. Mm. Witnessing, yes, is a different thing. Mm. Yeah. Because yeah. you're not dependent. Your happiness is not dependent on them saying, oh, that was amazing. Yes. Your well-being is dependent on you simply allowing it to be witnessed. Yes. And, and to, to being fully present yeah. as you're making it or doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Oh, delicious. Delicious, delicious insights. So um, I think you also spoke to me before about another way of using your creative process, and that was to tackle an inner mindset shift for yourself. Do you want to tell us more about that? Yeah, so I'm kind of quite interested in, you know, the the inner chat that is going on all the time. Um, And um, I tuned into it first and foremost because I did a a short online course a few years ago um, about... Um, performance anxiety so one of the reasons um, I first got into hosting a jam session for example was because I realized that on a on a gig the thing that really brought me to a place of nervousness or fearfulness was what do I say in between the tunes how do I build rapport with my audience how do I kind of check in with them and see if they're having a good time without sounding cheesy and false and inauthentic And um, so I thought, well, if I agree to host this jam session, then that would be good practice because I'm only doing the talking between the tunes and I'm inviting people up and empowering them and making them feel comfortable to play and sing. Um, So that became quite an interesting process to work through my anxiety. Not that anybody knew that, but that's really what was going on for me. That was the project there. And then becoming a radio presenter for sure was was a kind of extension of that, you know, kind of being okay with the sound of your own voice and um, making interjections and comments about the pieces between the tracks that you're playing. So I realised that this inner voice that caused that anxiety was, you know, kind of constantly saying really, it must be internalising things that I heard growing up as well as, you know, that's rubbish, you know, or I was being criticised for being spontaneous when I was a child, you know, not thinking things through and not having a kind of plan. Or um, I think another part of it was about just thinking that it was a waste of time that was a big thing there were a lot of phrases used in my childhood around time and the best use of time and being productive and yeah wasting time was a big sin in my household (laughs) I was quite shocked really when I realized how loud my inner saboteur actually was and how forceful it kind of got through to me and made me doubt things and made me um, not give myself permission that's the main thing so when it came to transitioning into my career change as, as an author I realized that the main and final sub- stumbling block was was me and that I hadn't fully given myself permission I thought it was a waste of time so that was the, the message that was coming through that I couldn't do it that it was too spontaneous what was I thinking it was too radical a shift there was no continuity or justification for doing this at this time it was mere uh, capriciousness on my part or whatever and um, and I had to really silence all those all those comments and say I, I know I know what you're saying but I'm doing it anyway and I don't care I don't care about any of that because I don't even care whether I find success as an author because this is just something I'm doing for me 
And I did it in my lunch hour to begin with um, during a job that I wasn't enjoying very much. So it was partly to make the day go a bit quicker and to find some stimulation outside of what I was doing as my paid work at the time. And um, and I finished the novel and that was the, the achievement that I wanted to finish this novel. And I feel that I had kind of put a whole story arc in motion and brought it to its resolution. Uh, it was a very satisfying thing to do. And then I had no idea what to, what to do next, what the next part of that process was. So it stayed in a drawer, just printed out for a, a three years until I got it out again and, and completed the trilogy. So it, it, I realised the story wasn't finished. And so in every sense of being a creative and operating also in relationships and in a family as a mother, um, I realised that this inner saboteur was, was um, detrimental to my mental health and... Um, not necessary to live, listen to it. I, f I think I realised that I, I felt that there was no option but to listen to it and to pay it attention and to give it credibility um, for so many years. And I was kind of annoyed with myself, really. It had taken until my 40s to, first of all, consciously hear it and also diagnose or decipher why it was saying what it was saying and where that had come from, what the kind of context was for all of those you know, negative bits of feedback that I was giving myself. And it was very freeing. It was like a, it was like realizing you'd been driving with the handbrake on all that time, and um, suddenly you grew wings, and suddenly you could fly, and suddenly you could kind of stick two fingers up at this voice and, and not worry about it. How does the actual act of writing support you when you're in the present moment with it? Oh, such an interesting question. I think when you're in a place where you've kind of fully imagined a, a world that a novel is going to inhabit or even a poem it's definitely a place so I'm you know as a, maybe because I trained as an architect I, I kind of think very spatially I imagine very visually I'm a very visual learner and all of those things so it's definitely a place I go to so it's immediately beyond the words I don't get hung up on the words I don't have a thesaurus at my elbow you know I'm not always constantly it's very intuitive the choice of words and the way that I put the words together because it's all about evoking this place and this emotional place or this this physical place so I I think that it's about allowing that transition to shift. So it is quite meditative because it feels like just opening to whatever comes through and it feels there's a lot of trust involved. And that's why it's so important to get control of the inner saboteur because the inner saboteur is dead sure you're not going to trust yourself <laughs> and can't be that you can't be trusted actually um so you have to kind of deal with it in order to get to a place where it feels safe to write and it feels safe to spend all day writing even if what you come up with by the end of the day doesn't end up in the book at all it's just mm -hmm. a way of getting to an understanding of what this character needs or um uh, what this book doesn't need if you like oh so important to have the space to just be and create something that is of no importance to anyone else mm. part of the journey mm -hmm. and um doesn't need to end up in the end piece yeah. that process itself is absolutely magical for me mm. yeah yeah I love that I mean I think it's also about reframing what we what we the word failure actually um and perhaps what's underpinning a lot of people's inner chat is a constant fear of failure. And, and failure in the modern world is what to a kind of caveman would have been a survival failure, you know, an existential threat of, of a very real kind. Failure is what stands in for that in our, in our lifestyle because we often don't face the need to survive in a very 
physical sense, we're surviving socially or surviving reputationally or surviving self-esteem wise is more, more of a thing to us. And um, so reframing failure as, as something that you can learn from always and something where you can do inner work and, and laugh at yourself and have a little chuckle and think, ha ha, you know, I always do that. Why do I always do that? Um, is so healthy, I think. And, yeah. but it's only been recently that I've been able to, to do that. And it's, been very valuable and that concept of the blank page for either an artist or a writer um, or anybody doing any kind of improvisation even in the theatre or dance space that concept of the blankness of the nothingness Mm -hmm. that you can then dip into and not be afraid of not knowing yes yeah I've developed some techniques with children in schools because um, if I could just sort of put my other hat on for a moment, um, what I've observed about creativity in education, and I'm sure you have too, Vicky, again and again and in different settings, is that there's a lot of inhibition in school, in schooling um, and the way that we, we teach at the moment because, again, waste of time, creative side of the brain, you know, blah, 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 you know, not enough time spent doing those kinds of things. So when you go into a classroom and you're, you're there to run a creative writing workshop or a poetry writing workshop, the children can access that very quickly if you create the right and safe circumstances for them to do it. But they've been hampered and inhibited by a kind of practice of, of uh, learning where they write at the top of the sheet, we are learning to Walt. We are learning to, you know, create a character. We are learning to write in an iambic pentameter. We are <laughs> whatever it is. I don't know. The first thing I say is we're not learning to do anything. We're just being here. We're just kind of being with our thoughts and our feelings and some trying to translate them into words, into a picture that we can say in words. And I ask the teachers to give me uh, plain photocopy paper often because I think it's more freeing than the lined paper and and I like the children sit on the floor or lie on the floor and so anything that I can get them to a place where they trust themselves and they're playing and the teachers usually apologize by then because the children have got a bit noisy and a bit fractious and a bit you know because they're being they're being boisterous and and so I kind of then have to say to the teacher I, I, I don't mind this is part of it this shows it's working for me and and good things will come of this and then there's always that kid in the corner who won't talk or look at you and then ends up producing this incredible story or poem that you didn't know it was going to come out of them and neither did the teacher mm. <laughs> um, and I so I find that very joyful and I I love empowering children because I think it's so important to not switch that part of them off. You know, it seems as though it's so easy to do that and focus on so many of these other more analytical, rational, left brain types of activities in school as though that has some sort of primacy over creativity. And it's a, it's a great shame and it doesn't take much. So what I do to overcome the blank sheet of paper thing, because often that is a hindrance and, and it hampers people's ability to get going, is I'll, um, I'll give them a, a restriction so what works particularly well is if I tell them to write a poem, but they can't use a certain vowel or something like that. And then it makes them get really creative with finding alternative words and ways of saying things. And some really great poems, actually, I've seen over the last year since I've been doing those poetry workshops have been an eye opener. I love that. That's how we've um, that's how you're sharing your wisdom of this whole beautiful process in the world. And um I'd really like you to talk a bit more about the the novels that you've written, the teenage cli-fi novels that you've written, because not only is the the use of the story, the narrative, the character, the the opportunity to identify with character for young, you know, the teenagers reading that, but also some of the topics that you um, choose to write about that really 
you know, seek to plant seeds of awareness and personal growth and environmental understanding in all of your stories. So would you like to speak to more about that kind of writing that you offer to the world? Mm. Oh, lovely. Thank you very much for that um, invitation to, to think about these things in a new way. Um, yeah, the, the, the fact that I write climate fiction was a bit of an accident. So I didn't plan to do that. I found out it was a genre after my first book, Sea Bean, came out. Um, and then I felt quite quite on board if you like I thought no I really I'm really I really want to rise to this challenge of being a climate fiction author but I realized when I looked around at what other climate fiction authors were writing about or the kind of feel of their books was quite apocalyptic it was quite um it was quite bleak it, was, it lacked a hopefulness and a restorativeness and it was very focused on the disaster side of things you know the kind of um calamitous uh, coping with some momentous, you know, whatever, environmental disaster or other. Flooding, lack of oxygen, lack of water, lack of food, like whatever it was, you know, horrendous circumstances. And I thought, well, yeah, I, I, that's a big part of being a Clifi author is you have to engage with something that is to do with the, you know, nature, the, 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 uh, the kind of power of nature. But it can also go in other directions as well. So, yeah, classically, my, my first story was... was using time travel to go 100 years into the future to see how very different things could be if climate change, you know, um, progresses along the, the line that it is right now uh, and enable children to see and then use time travel to try and sort of figure some things out and fix a few things. But it was a bit heel fix save, if you like, um, that first trilogy. So when it came to write my, my next book, I my children were a bit older. I wanted to write in the YA category, the young adult category. And I developed a big fascination with all kinds of things, really, uh, like uh, Atlantis and giants and um the Dogon people in Africa and how they knew stuff about Sirius, which is our nearest star system. And and I thought that somewhere in here there's a story and it could be a Cli-Fi story if I work hard on it. So I realised that my belief was that Atlantis was a real place that was destroyed in a previous episode of extreme climate change. And if I was going to write about that and I needed some human beings that were going to be survivors of that um, episode... And also re revealed to us, you know, that obviously we did survive it. Otherwise, we wouldn't still be here. Humanity did survive whatever happened during those Atlantean times. And um, my three main characters are actually, I think that the Atlanteans were very sophisticated technologically. And they, they are gen genetically modified human beings. Because I discovered that um, blue eyes happened very suddenly about 12,000 years ago. And it's likely that it was an experiment that brought about the blue eyes. Because before then, everyone had brown eyes. So these three characters don't know each other exists and they don't know that they have been the product of a, a sort of science experiment. And so a lot of, of that, I guess, parallels our existence about reclaiming your sovereignty, because by the end of the story, they have that awareness. And they, from the people that invented them, that they thought was their pa, uh, their father, they reclaim their sovereignty and stand in their power and stop being part of some hive mind or stop being part of some connected thing that is of use to other people in power so I thought that was a very different way of writing a similar narrative to the Hunger Games but less bleak and less about children being hunted to the death or whatever that seems quite depressing to me but with my new book Black Loop which is um, just coming to fruition now I thought well what are the other parameters yeah we can talk about alternative sources of energy that's quite hopeful or restoring what rewilding of nature that's a hopeful way and narrative and everything but 
actually there's this other kind of energy that we know is out there but we just haven't been able to quite tap into yet free energy zero point energy that nikola tesla back in the day was really onto and had developed devices to bring down a stream of electrons or plasma or whatever and, and it's an endless flow of, of, of energy that will step beyond wave energy solar energy any source of renewable energy and definitely let us get let go of fossil fuels um, so I thought, what if I wrote a story about a bunch of teenagers who find themselves flung together for whatever reason um, in a building where there is in secret being developed uh, a zero point energy device um, and that they kind of start to figure out what it is by experientially, you know, not not by some reading some quantum physics book or whatever, and then realize that this thing has the potential to power things and heal things even. So that's what the book is about. And the, the main character is on a bit of a journey herself. She also has lost her mum in this case. Um, so I'm not rewriting my own story, but because my mum was perfectly fine. But this this girl's lost her mum to alcoholism and her dad's also a functioning alcoholic. And so she's quite messed up at the beginning of the story. Low self-esteem, very judgmental of other people, especially people she perceives to have more than she has, you know, materially or emotionally or, you know, whatever, psychologically. And so she goes on a bit of a journey and figures out that everybody actually has issues and she's not the only one, you know, she's not alone with the, this idea that she has issues. And she starts to relate to people better and come out of herself a bit more, like herself a bit more. And alongside of all of that, they're, they're kind of getting along in this disastrous circumstance that they find themselves in and also discovering about this zero point energy device. And so it's been a lot of fun. I, I like to think of it as kind of Stranger Things meets The Breakfast Club. Um, um, and I'm just trying to tease out the last, you know, you, you often worry as a writer about, you know, how many ends do you, loose ends do you have to tie off to make the ending feel satisfactory to a reader? And the answer is not every not every loose end needs tying off. So sometimes I find that when I rework it and go back to a draft, I'm actually loosening it a little bit rather than making it all kind of nicely, you know, tidied up at the end of a story. That's an interesting, um, interesting insight about the tying up and the loose ending, because that also moves into safety as well. And those parameters that you can set to be able to explore your own inner landscape, your own identity, you know, and like you were talking about those little tasks that you give when uh, children are approaching the blank page with the poetry, mm. just something that allows you to be anchored, to have some sense of completion, but then has also little portals still open for more curiosity and more moving forwardness and bigger connection to a broader perspective. Yes. You know, I really yeah. like how you've outlined that. Yeah. Well, yeah. A, a child says straight away, they always see it as limit. Uh, they always say, oh, so that means if you, if you say prohibit A on their table, they say, oh, I can't write a poem about a cat. And I'm like, no, but you can write a poem about a dog or a monkey. <laughs> and it's um, all about expanding those expanding, parameters yeah, in yeah. all directions, isn't it? And I love how you're, you're bringing in that understanding of energy and quantum healing and personal growth. I love how you're allowing the story to hold those concepts for people so that you are then seed planting yet again, you mm. know, for people who are like, well, who am I in this world? What is my purpose? What is my mission? Mm. How can I move forward? And just like we're doing on this podcast, sharing stories of personal journey and then characters in the story of personal journey, because that's what we're all doing. We're all yes. on a personal journey. Yes. And there are so many amazing tools 
to allow us to navigate that journey. And for me, I mean, I'm a huge story lover, book lover, having been a drama teacher for so long. And, you know, that's that's where it's at for me to be able to identify, you know, and it's almost like a validation of your own existence. Yes. And a hope planting, isn't it? It's like, hmm, that could be me. Yes. Yeah. And and you you realise that so much of you changing your your sense of direction in your own life has been because you've encountered someone else that's inspired you in that same way so I used to worry that I wasn't on my mission if you like you know so when I started to do my spiritual inner work there's a lot of emphasis on you know do you know what your mission is what is your soul here to do Uh, those kinds of questions and I felt as though imminently I was about to give everything up and go and become a shaman in a forest or I was going to go and become you know a spiritual healer or something and and then I slowly realized that again it was a sort of reframing of what I'm doing you know when I'm going into a classroom I am performing a bit of a shamanic service there I am um, opening up people to their true selves and letting that voice come out and finding just finding that voice and finding ways of playing with that voice and so I realized I was on my mission I was on my path and I just needed I hadn't seen I just hadn't seen it and so in every different way and a lot of people uh, I, I guess you'll relate to this as well Vicky is a lot of people kind of get irritated with you when you do more than one thing you're a dilettante uh, you're a polymath, you're an overachiever, uh, you're all these things. And it kind of triggers people sometimes. And I used to get really thrown by that. You know, I used to feel apologetic. I used to hide things away. I'd compartmentalize. I'd only tell somebody one thing that I did. And then suddenly they'd find out another thing that I did. And then they wouldn't be able to square it. And they'd say, how come you do all these things? You know, <laughs> as though it was a great, I'd, I'd sort of deceive them. And then I thought, okay, you know, so maybe for every one person that's irritated by coming across somebody that does more than one thing, there'll be two or three people who are inspired by it. And that's what I need to focus on. Um, it being okay with what I do and not worrying, not judging myself because I don't conform to somebody else's idea of you only should have one talent in life or something. It's just a single thing. It's just a single thing, a desire to express and it comes out in different ways. That's all. I totally resonate with that. I can't ever put myself in a box either and that used to happen to me when I was young as well because I I would have done an art degree um, when I was in my 20s had that been where my focus had been I've Mm. always wondered shall I do an art degree in a parallel life but I ended up doing a psychology degree Mm. and then those two things have to square those in my head I have to square being a visual artist at the same time as being a writer yes you know and at the same time as loving dance and at the same time as being a theatre person Oh, you've just made me realise something. There's a kind of scarcity parameter that people put around it. Like you're being greedy. You're being greedy for doing all these things and wanting all these things and trying all these things. Um, And you've taken more of your share. That's really interesting because then it brings in this idea of consumption, that creativity is something that you consume and you mustn't consume too much of it because that's like having a whole chocolate cake or something. Because we associate creative things with the fun stuff that you do after the serious stuff. So then it's associated with sweetness and treats. Mm. It's a treat, you know, in school, you get to colour something in if you've done your maths in primary school. Gosh, yeah, that's so right, isn't it? And I wonder whether this this allowance, this permission that people can give themselves to access joy and to access freedom within themselves and to actually have um, an experience of being that rather than it's something they do on the weekends. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, you're so right. And I, you, these parameters that people have put around themselves because of the voices that they've heard mm-hmm. growing up, you know, how, and, and also there's, a, there's, there's such a, an, an emphasis on uh, becoming really skilled at one thing and following that through and then that being your career path or the thing that you make mm-hmm. your money from. And like it's taken me, I'm 53 now, it's taken me all of this time to understand what the overarching umbrella is of all of the things that I do. And I love the way that you've just nailed it by saying it's literally about pure in the moment self-expression for me and however that needs to come through. And that, I think that's why I was drawn to training in integrative art psychotherapy Mm. because the essence of what you need to say is the point. The medium is the Mm. facilitator. Yes. And so if it needs to be done in a verbal, you know, embodied, active way, then we may do that through script and theatre. If it needs to be done in a non-verbal, pre-verbal, symbolic way, then we might be making stuff out of clay. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and or you need to be accessing the vulnerability or the subtleties of ourself. I might be using watercolour, but if I need to be outrageously loud, then I'll be throwing acrylic. Yes, canvas, and it really is like the mediums or the talents or however you categorize that are simply a different sensory expression for something that needs to be said. So absolutely, let's celebrate doing all of it, trying all of it. We don't need to be an expert in any of it. We just need to be an expert in what we want to say. (laughs) Let go of the vocabulary around skill sets. You know, we we're obsessed with. Being yeah. able to kind of delineate well, what transferable skill is involved there or, or um, you know, because we're into this evidence based kind of thinking that, that comes with being part of a modern productive society. But if we let go of all of that utility of the skills and we're not honing our skills, we're not developing more disciplinary skills or in, even interdisciplinary skills. We're just we're just being and finding the most appropriate way for that to come through, exactly as you said. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. Gosh, well, let's think now in summing up then this Mm. extraordinary conversation. Thank you so much, Sarah. It's been brilliant. I mean, I know you anyway, but I've learned even more about you, about the, the, you know, the journey from from A to B about of why you are the way that you are now and how you see the world. Um, So if you were to give some advice or little words of wisdom to somebody listening now who perhaps hasn't started on any kind of creative um, journey for themselves or has things in their past, you know, that they've put to bed or might want to reignite, what advice would you give to somebody listening today about where they could start? Well, I think there's, you know, there's no space, no time, is there? So we are still that person we were when we were a child, because it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's not even yesterday, it's still in the now moment, you know, this is just another now moment we're in. And in this now moment, you know, allow yourself to be drawn towards things that that um, are meaningful to you and have an energy, you know, so learn to kind of move towards where the energy is, the best energy, the most positive, the highest energy, the, the most grace and ease, and that will be your joy, you know, so instead of kind of trying to figure it out by writing a list and pros and cons or you know when could I do this on a Saturday morning you know I'll allow myself 15 minutes after breakfast you know that's kind of using that left side of your brain to give yourself permission but it will go into flow more quickly and the joy that will come from even the smallest little thing of just singing in the bath one day and realizing there's a new tune there that you might 
have want to then sing into your phone and then you might I don't know where these things start it, it can be all sorts of different crazy odd moments but we perhaps have lost the knack of, of noticing when the energy is flowing within us and when it's um it's a gift you know when it's at its most optimum time and it can be a time of great sadness as well as a time of great joy great happiness so don't go thinking oh, I can only do those things when I'm feeling good about myself actually when you're feeling lousy you can access an energy sometimes even more potently um, but it's it, it yeah you do have to give it the time and you do have to become fully present to it and then say how how would I like to express this you know what what's the best way and it may be it may be in words it may be in sounds it may be in something visible um and it may be just making up a new game to play with with a child or a pet or something. You know, it can be the smallest, smallest thing, um, and it, then it, and it can grow. And I think that we often are really limiting ourselves. We have a lot of self-limiting beliefs, and the dismantling of some of those is really ex the most expansive thing that you can do. Oh, thank you for that. I really love that. And I love how you've just given that, that reminder that you do not need to wait until you are feeling good about yourself. And in fact, the potency from the intensity of the emotion where you're at in that moment, because emotions are just emotions. They're mm. not categorized as bad or good. They just simply are. Mm. And that mindful practice of noticing and observing an emotion is, is really, really helpful as a perspective but to allow that intensity, and you know me, we've talked about this in you know conversations before. I'm, I'm a real lover of sitting with the intensity and the shadow and the darkness and seeing what gold comes from that. Mm. So it's like I wouldn't joke about depression, but if I'm having a down day or if I'm having a darker day, um, I'm not yearning to be in a lighter side of myself. I'm actually then thinking it's a poetry day. Let's go there. Yes. You know, and because I've got the safety parameters of my own words of time that I allow myself, you know, and it just even the beginning and the end of the page to know that everything that I'm feeling in this moment can just be contained in that space and it can be outside of myself. Mm -hmm. yes. And when it's outside of myself, then I've freed up some life energy space yes. inside myself that allows me to be in a more observational position. Yes. And then it gives you that perspective. So, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Start small, you know, go where your energy is taking you and allow it to be exactly what it is and mm. see what comes out. And I think you, you, you just sort of nailed it as well about the kind of the getting it out of yourself um, is probably the biggest impulse that you're having is, is, is to. And I mistook that for once it was outside of myself, I needed to then give it to somebody to then receive in con as a contract, you know, something back from them. But right. the, the point is to just get it out of yourself, you yeah. know, so it's not just in your heart or your head or in your, in your, in your, in your body. Um, it's something outside. And the, and the clearest, most straightforward thing is dancing, isn't it? As oh, you're saying, you know, that yes. then you're getting it out with your body, by your body. Um, and it isn't a thing that you can then give to somebody else. You can't give somebody your dancing but you can express your, 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 your feelings through the dance. Totally. And a phrase has just popped into my head. Leave it all on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or leave lovely. it all on the page. And my mm. goodness, give yourself a moment to breathe when you say, wow, is that what's there for me today? Yeah. Hello. I'm Absolutely. noticing you. Right. Okay. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Oh, gosh. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for this conversation. I really thank hope you. that people listening appreciate the richness and the journey that you, you, you've shown us, that you've been on as, as a creative person, but also how that, you know, really your awareness and your insights about your own internal process and how all of your journey has really enhanced that and then how you've moved on to share that awareness of personal journey in the characters in your stories I mean it's an absolute sharing of wisdom and I'm really really honored that you've you know chose to share it with us today and obviously completely honored that you're my friend and we have amazing conversations <laughs> if we'd have recorded all of our conversations for oh, yeah. years, my goodness. there's probably a few books in there as well <laughs> there probably is a few books absolutely so I just want to say thank you um I will put your links um wherever this podcast is posted and uh yeah thank you so much no my absolute pleasure thank you very much Vicky you're very welcome Ma-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da